0: Well thanks Jeremy and uh, if we haven't met my name is Matt and I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Church Tonsley and if you're new today or have missed the last few weeks we are in a four-week series looking at the book of 2 Peter. Uh, In chapter 1 we heard of the great encouragement from one of Jesus' closest disciples Peter That God has indeed reconciled us to himself and given us everything we need to have a fully restored relationship with him and pursue a godly life in the world today. We've been encouraged by Peter to make every effort to live out a full and well-rounded Christian life in this world. And the apostle reveals his life is coming to an end and he's making every effort to ensure that we can recall all we need as the generation that saw Jesus face to face gives way to every generation since up until this day. Last week we saw Peter reassert the surety of the return of Jesus to this world and the absolute reliability of God's word to us. And in today's reading we'll realise why Peter laid that foundation for, uh, for us as his biggest concern as his earthly life comes to an end is of the devastating effect that false teachers of, uh, of God's people will have upon the church. Uh, I think what we're about to read is one of the most urgent uh, and uh, includes some of the most colourful language that we have in the New Testament as the apostle kind of reveals his horror and deep concern about the impact of false teachers. So before Lockie uh, uh, gets up to read this important passage to us, I wanted to give you a heads up on that and I'll be back up in a minute to help us get our heads around of what's going here. Uh, but as I've thought of how this applies to us, uh, As the week progressed, I almost had two completely different sermons I wanted to preach on it. So I thought I'd do something a little different today and give you two quite distinct uh, applications uh, with this challenging passage. So kind of with two sermons to preach in one timeline, I'm going to hand over to Lockie now. And as he comes up, it'd be great to have 2 Peter 2 open in front of you, which you'll
1: find on page 1851 of the Bibles on your seats. Thanks, (laughs) Lockie. Good morning, everyone. So as Matt said, our reading today is 2 Peter 2, verses 1 to 22. Um, And you can also follow uh, on the screen beside me here. So 2 Peter 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly induce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, For that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from the trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desires of the flesh and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like animals, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, revelling in their pleasures while they feast with you. Their eyes are full of adultery. They never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed, an accursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beza who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are escaping from those who live in error they promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them if they have escaped the corruption of the if they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a, and a a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Well, thanks, Lockie. Uh, As we begin today, I want to take you back to
0: the swinging 60s in London during a time of huge cultural change. Uh, The churches there had actually been growing strongly since the end of World War II and the winds of church unity were blowing strongly. Uh, The British Council of Churches had resolved uh, actually in 1964 that by 1980 that all the church denominations were going to be amalgamated into one national church. Now, it seems uh, so naive to us uh, some 60 years on, uh, but at the time, there were many who thought that a realistic goal. I mean, what's not to love all of God's churches standing as one? Yet, like today, it didn't account for the fact that some churches had deviated wildly from the faith passed down to us in God's word. Now evangelical is a term that really has nothing to do with North American politics and everything to do with clarity around the good news of Jesus and a high regard for the Bible being God's word to us as we've seen asserted so strongly by the Apostle Peter uh, last week. So, as uh, evangelicals in Britain gathered in 1966, a few years later, at a national assembly to consider this radical call to unity and what next steps to take, uh, a guy by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was at the peak of his preaching powers, nearing retirement age, and was asked to address this assembly. Now, the mood apparently that night was kind of fever pitch. His sermon was electric. And he actually called evangelicals out for their lack of visible unity with one another while remaining scattered and ineffective around the major denominations. Remaining formally and visibly linked with false teachers and not standing together as one in what he called evangelical unity around the gospel. And he put forward this idea of a new fellowship or association of evangelical churches. Uh, a much younger, yet equally popular, 40-year-old John Stott was uh, chairing this public lecture and uh, sort of precedent would have it that it was his role to, as chair to thank the speaker and introduce the last hymn. Yet as he rose, he indeed thanked the good doctor for his sermon, but stated in a stinging public rebuke that, Lord, that Lloyd-Jones had neither history nor scripture on his side sparking a fierce debate that in many ways still simmers along in the Church of England about the appropriateness of gospel-hearted Christians remaining in formal fellowship with uh, churches marked by unbelief and false teachers. So how does 2 Peter 2 help us think about who had the right response there? That's introduction one. I'm going to do introduction two for two points. More briefly, the Bible is very clear that the chief role of an elder in the church is to teach the Bible and do so faithfully. The Apostle Paul puts it clearly that character matters in elders, that both your life and doctrine must be watched. And after pointing to what the fruits of a faithful life look like, he says in Titus chapter 1 verse 9, speaking of the elder, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it." As Cam mentioned in the leaflet letter, some of the staff team uh, were able to be part of a national conference in New South Wales a week ago. And one of the evening talks, the speaker pointed out that this role of kind of refuting error has never been harder than it is right now. Up until about 20 years ago, false teachers were fairly sort of slow-moving targets new church might be set up in town preaching a false gospel. You could identify the error, protect your church under your care by bringing the Bible to bear in a corrective way, teaching sound doctrine and refuting error, as is the God-given task of an elder. False teachers could, of course, write books and have them published, but again, fairly slow-moving target. You can read it, produce a written response or sermon to address the false teaching. Whereas today, false teachers can make endless inroads into the church and you can't see them coming due to the endless array of podcasts, blogs, online communities, through videos and slick music. People can be drawn to false teachers and dive deep for months, getting their sort of arguments uh, straight and then recommending a great podcast uh, to their pastor. Or catching the pastor unaware sort of after the service who's been juggling many things with a well-crafted doctrinal challenge with months of background reading and preparation catching uh, the pastor off guard who didn't see it coming. It is impossible today for a pastor to be well prepared on every false teaching out there being consumed in a church. So how should 2 Peter 2 shape us as we think about that challenge? There's two big issues for us to consider, so it's twice as important that we understand what's going on in 2 Peter 2 today. So let's dive into the text, which is a little tricky, uh, before we come back to address both of those very important issues in turn. It'd be great to have your Bible open in front of you if it's not already. Now when I say tricky, there is some stuff here. I'm not sure about and even reading some of the greats they're not sure about either in terms of for example who exactly is heaping abuse on what celestial being in uh, verse 10 and uh, some of the other challenges as well yet even without all of the minute detail resolved I think we can confidently draw some conclusions about the big picture of what the apostle Peter is saying and apply it to us accurately today so that's our task. In verse 1, the big issue is very clear. Just as there has always been false prophets among God's people before Jesus came, there will be false teachers who arise in the church in every age. God has always taken false teaching very seriously. In Deuteronomy 13, for example, false prophets that lead people away from worshipping the one true God were to be put to death by the people. And Peter here in today's passage is equally clear as false teachers who lead people to embrace and indulge in sin that God has strictly forbidden will face the harshest of judgments from God. And the issue at stake, as verse 2 states, is that many will follow these false teachers, depraved conduct and bring the way of God's truth into disrepute. And sadly, church history is littered with such stories. Greed and exploitation are the false teacher's motives. While their judgment may be delayed, it is coming, as verse 3 says. This whole conversation about Peter's absolute horror at the impact of false teaching has... uh, indeed been bookended between chapter one that we saw over the last two weeks and its clarity that the Christian already has everything necessary for life and godliness and Peter makes the contrast now between the complete reliability of God's inspired word and here in chapter two the devastating effects of relying on false teaching about God which can only be relied upon to bring you down to death. And the other bookend is chapter 3 that we'll see next week and the reliability of the prophetic word of the Old Testament and the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ through his apostles in the new. Of the false teacher, Peter concludes this section in the second half of verse 3 saying their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping, referring to false teachers. And with the stage now set, a contrast is being made between the reliability of God and the deception of false teaching about him. Peter now builds his case for what is at stake, what's at risk, and he makes his argument from verse 9, building kind of to the punchline, sorry, from verse 4, building to the punchline of verse 9. Let's read from verse 4 and follow the logic and actually feel the full weight of it. This is not just information we're taking on, feel the weight of this. Where we read verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. Starting like this in the heavenly realms, in verse 4, Peter makes his case that no one is exempt from judgment. And though it is delayed, it is real, verse 5. Then from verse 5 onwards, we see that God's inevitable judgment can be escaped. And like Noah, we are to hold out that salvation, uh, that salvation on offer by God to others, even if we are mocked as he was. As we read, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, a proclaimer that there is a way to be right with God and seven others. That's what Noah holds out there. And moving away from the heavenly realms to the ancient world, we zoom in on a specific local case of Sodom and Gomorrah and the judgment of God contrasted against his protection of Lot, who, verse 7, was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless. For that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds that he saw and heard." which seems to be driving home the point that the pattern of God's judgment has been revealed and living a godly life in this world will be hard for the follower of Jesus. In Peter's time with the persecution of Christians on the rise, those in power actively opposed to the way of Christ... He was seeking to care for the fledgling church in its rising distress by building his case, drawing these three stories together, saying, verse 9, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. Now, if you felt the weight of that, I'm sure you would acknowledge with me that the concept of the final judgment of God and there being a fixed set of moral rights and wrongs in our worlds has never been popular and it certainly isn't today for sure. If you're here today just checking out who Jesus is for the first time or Church and Jesus for the first time in a long time I realise it's a difficult concept to hear and maybe you've already thought Man, once this service is over, I'm out of here breaking for the door. Or if you're listening along online, you're just about to hit stop. If that's you, please lean in and listen carefully to this next point. It could be the most consequential few minutes of your life. Because the context in which Peter says these harsh and hard to hear words is absolutely crucial on us understanding them aright. As Peter knows that righteousness, that right standing with God, is on offer freely to everyone as a gracious gift from Jesus to you as he went obediently to death on the cross, so that he could bear the wrath and judgment of God on his shoulders, so that if you are bound to Jesus, you need not shoulder that judgment upon your shoulders. Instead, We receive righteousness, this right standing with God as a gift, free to us, costly to Jesus. Grace and peace with God in abundance flow, forgiveness has been won for us by Jesus as we pursue in God's strength a fruitful, godly life, free from the fear of God's coming judgment looking to the day, chapter 1, verse 11, as Peter has said, where an entrance is richly provided for us into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So you've got to follow the logic. If the judgment of God is both real and inevitable, as Peter has said, and there is a way through Jesus to avoid it, please don't make today the closest you'll ever come to finding that way of peace with Jesus. We're heading into week two of our life series this week. It's a great way to look into these things and ask whatever questions you like. It's free. Food and drink are on us and we're in week two this week looking at the problem of sin in depth before we look at God's wonderful solution in Jesus. You can watch the video of week one. It's free on our website. Just hit the Jesus button. It's at the bottom of the page and come to our life series because I want to say to you it would be an absolute tragedy if one day you face the judgment of God knowing that it could have been avoided and looking back on this day knowing this was as close as you ever came to finding the solution in Jesus heaven and hell really do hang in the balance and that's what's at stake here that's why Peter's so passionate in his farewell letters false teachers will tell you that judgment isn't real that repentance from sin isn't really a thing required anymore and that it's okay for us to follow our corrupted desires that that brokenness inside every person on the planet broken through our rejection of god those who teach you that this passage says very clearly will be judged harshly by god which is what triggers such colorful language from peter in verses 11 to 22 We won't look at it all in detail, and I don't grasp all of it. There's a few things I've added to my question time in heaven uh, list this week. But the big point is astoundingly clear to see. Here's the highlight reel of Peter's devastating assessment of false teachers. Verse 12, they blaspheme in matters they do not understand as they sort of sit in judgment of God's way to live. Then from verse 14 with eyes full of adultery they never stop sinning they seduce the unstable they are experts in greed and a cursed brood. We'll jump to verse 18 for they mouth empty boastful words by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh. Sexual permissiveness is their game. They are so dangerous because false teachers entice people who are taking baby steps towards Jesus and escaping sin and judgment. And if they are again corrupted after hearing this great news, they are worse off than they would have been not knowing about Jesus and his free gift of righteousness, returning to sin, as Peter says, like a dog returns to its vomit." This is some of the most colourful language in the Bible because of what's at stake. Truth and error. Jesus' righteousness as a gift or false promises that lead to destruction. Heaven and hell. As such, Peter reserves his harshest language for false teachers, Read with me from verse 13: They will be paid back for the harm they have do- Sorry, paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Or verse 17: Blackest darkness is reserved for them. And verse 12, I think, is the harshest assessment of them all. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, only born only to be caught and destroyed. Like animals too, they will perish. Cover to cover, we see God, like he has through his apostle today, taking false teaching about him very seriously. Now, confident that that point is made, now our job is to work out how as a church it plays out in each of our two applications. And of course there are more applications. So firstly I want to return to our John Stott and Martin Lloyd-Jones story because I think as a church today we're at a point where we need to think carefully through our who we're associated with once more. Holy Trinity is uh, in the city was Adelaide's first church plant in 1836 planted in the new colony uh, by the Church of England so it was and has remained formally linked with the Anglican Church. Now you may have noticed we don't trade much on that as the Trinity Network. It's only barely mentioned on our website and there's some rainy day fun trying to find the one oblique reference uh, there for it. Now I want to say up front, Anglicanism by its founding uh, documents and theology has some wonderful history. In some parts of the world, the Bible is richly taught by people passionate about the gospel of Jesus with a high regard for scripture. However, sadly, in our time, in our city, it is not the case, and that should not surprise us given what the Apostle Peter has said. False teaching is rife in the Adelaide Anglican Diocese, so we keep our distance. So much so that many of you who are new to us might be surprised to find out that I'm actually an Anglican ordained minister. Our current association as a network of churches is at its lowest ebb ever and exists now only really on a functional basis because of the issue of false teaching. The arguments of Stott and Jones almost 60 years ago about whether it's appropriate to stay in a denomination where false teaching about God is rife are as fresh and as relevant for us today. And for some context, I think this has changed uh, in the last sort of 10 or 20 years. Uh, 10 years ago, under our previous archbishop, there were plenty of things I uh, would disagree with uh, him on, but I could say them to him, I could have a meeting, We could talk, he would tell me what I think, I would tell him what... uh, uh, Sorry, he would... (coughs) start that again. He would tell me what he thinks. It usually always starts there with uh, with an archbishop. Uh, I would then get the chance to respond and open the Bible together and we could disagree. And wherever he stood on a range of issues, he actually pushed some of the worst elements of false teaching out of our diocese. And our new archbishop has welcomed them back in again and is nowhere near as clear uh, on biblical matters as our previous one was. So that's the context. As you consider what is a wise thing to do next, both Stott and Jones, if you want to read, and I, I printed out an article from the Gospel Coalition, so if you want to think about this some more, both are well thought out. Both are committed to calling out false teaching and unbelief in those who lead the church and both taught very actively to protect their churches and to protect the gospel. If you want to consider their arguments, it's a good read and will only take you 10 minutes or so. There's some printouts on the table there and we'll send it out in the weekly email as well. My thoughts are, Given what we've just unpacked from 2 Peter 2, we have to think very, very carefully about how we relate to false teaching in the church. And where I come from it, I come from it from a missional perspective. That here, I think, is unashamedly the Apostle Peter's primary concern, that people would come to know the earth-shatteringly good news of Jesus, as given by God, and faithfully recorded to us in his word. He would, he's passionate about that. He doesn't want people to be led astray and to their destruction by false teachers who appeal to our sinful desires and give us false assurances. So today, as in Peter's day, much false teaching still resides in the church, and interestingly, it hasn't changed much Uh, from when the Apostle first wrote these words, that much of it centres around what I would describe as sexual permissiveness. God is abundantly clear in his word that sex is a wonderful gift given by him to be enjoyed by a man and a woman in marriage together. We live in a time where that is deeply unpopular and considered repressive. And I really think of the next generation of our youth and young adults who rise up amidst kind of hookup culture, pornography, Tinder, Grindr, friends with benefits, in a society that has made sex a recreational pursuit rather than the glue that binds two people together for life. We should feel much more pain than I suspect we do living in such times, the pain of Noah and Lot that they felt, I think, should be instructive for us. And as people who know the grace of God and what Jesus has done, heading to the cross to pay the penalty of sin, so that anyone on the planet, and I mean anyone, can find grace and peace with God in abundance, I think we are called to do two things. To lovingly proclaim the gospel to all people, regardless of race, class, gender, sexual orientation, and at the same time be brutally clear in our stance against false teaching in the church today. Out of great love for people who do not know the grace of God. My read on the cultural moment that we're in is that we as a church want to be aboundingly gracious, kind, loving and gentle towards uh, all people And particularly, I'm feeling for those who currently find their primary identity in the LGBT community. I would hate to be used as a political football. I would hate people who haven't taken the time to know me to talk down to me. For the Christian, I think it's a time to, in humility to acknowledge that we ourselves, there is no part of our mind, our sexuality, our heart, our body that is untouched or unbroken by sin. We have to come from that place of humility about ourselves, championing the grace of the gospel to all people. Because the message of the gospel is one for all people, of eternal hope, optimism and joy where anyone on the planet can find their true identity in Jesus. With that in mind, can you see the danger false teachers pose to Jesus' mission to reconcile humanity to God through the cross? If there are false teachers in the church today that teach, as some openly do in our diocese, that Jesus will not return. I was mocked in my ordination class for teaching at Life that we actually believe that Jesus will one day physically return. I have seen time and time again, people want to exclude any reference to judgment or the wrath of God or to sit under the authority of scripture as motions get passed at synods, People deny and teach openly that God calls us. To actually live in line, to you know, firstly have our relationship restored with him and from a position of absolute freedom, live in line with what he deems good and true. People who have church written on the door and have the same, banner, same badge, you know, Reverend Matt Lehman, actively teach that in our city today. They teach against that good news and they teach other things. Sadly, our albeit tenuous link to the Adelaide Diocese of uh, Anglicans links us to such false teachers, some of whom 2 Peter 2 is an apt description. And we need to think about that carefully. Out of great love for all in our city who don't know the grace of God that can be found in Jesus... I think now is a great time to own our future together, to know and be a part of how we make decisions as a church on such matters. To ask questions, to pray and to look to God together. Now our AGM is coming up on Monday week and as much as finances are concerning, there's a much bigger reason why you should come along. Uh, Historically, those familiar with me will know that I've often played down the importance of an AGM. I had my reasons, my heart was good, but in the end I think I was wrong to do so and I want to correct that. Because a healthy church takes ownership of our life together and good governance is but one way that we can do that. We'd love to see you there. The details are in the leaflet. And moving to our second point of application on false teaching, just briefly, I have three quick points I want to make to you when we're trying to kind of juggle this what seems to me an impossible task to hold false teaching at bay outside the church today uh, given the blessings and challenges that coming from being connected in a digital world. So my first point I'd want to make is always have a bible between me and you. God's word to us is where the power of God resides and it's where truth and authority reside, and it is our ultimate weapon against false teaching. Any good Bible teacher wants you to be looking at the Bible and questioning what he says is true and right, because these words are your life. As a pastor at Trinity, we enjoy a great deal of trust and respect from our church family. It's very kind, there's a good heart to it. And I don't mean to embarrass anyone here today, but I want to be clear because this is very important. From today, I'd love to set all of you a goal. Big stretch goal, I'm I'm a fan of big stretch goals. And my goal is never to sit through another sermon again without a Bible open in front of you or on your phone. Keep one between me and you or any preacher at all times. Own it as part of our corporate identity to be committed to biblical truth. Preachers make mistakes. God does not through his word. Secondly, with so much biblical teaching online today, it is impossible, as I've said, for false teachers, so for, <laughs> to pastors to stay across every false teaching. God calls us to be a part of real churches and to real, have a real pastor who knows you and is called by Jesus to give an account for you. I'm not against podcasts, I listen to them all the time, I love finding good ones. But as you join this church, I want to say clearly, please do so with the heart of taking our pastoral staff as your pastors. I would always encourage you to value the opinion of the real pastor God has given you more than those that you can find online. We are accountable to God for each person who calls this local church family their own, which is quite a responsibility We are called to challenge, correct, encourage, rebuke and build up the people of God. So many today, and it's a big part of Australian culture at the moment, want to retain their opinion as the highest authority there is and then find people online who agree with them, which makes us all very susceptible to false teaching. Rather, I would encourage you to sit under God's authority, exercise through his word, delivered by flawed but real pastors who love and pray for you much more than you probably realise. And finally, I'm out of time, but it's my simplest point. Another great protection against false teaching is to sing the truth to one another. Singing is such a powerful thing to take truth from the head and impress it in the heart. Value the words that we sing. Assess songs not just on their tune but on the truth they convey and sing them to God. Sing them to build up your heart and the heart of the brothers and sisters in Christ who are your own. For time's sake, I'm going to uh, reshuffle the end of the service this morning. I'm going to pray quickly. Uh, Grace is going to then come up and pray more widely for us. And then we'll sing two great songs, one older one that everyone will know and one newer one that we started uh, the day with to impress these truths upon our hearts and I encourage you to sing with full voice but for now I'll pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, we thank you so much for your word uh, to us and we just want to pray for each person in the building today. These, as you know, you know our hearts, you know everything about us, Uh, you know the whole variety of reasons uh, for why we find these things Uh, hard to hear and challenging to us and we pray that you do a great work in each of our hearts by the power of your spirit so bit by bit uh, we might uh, for those who have already placed their trust in you we might uh, grow in our appreciation of the role of your word to us uh, as delivered through the local church that we might happily sit under the authority of your word in challenging times and we pray for all those who uh, seeking you out Lord that the stakes uh, of what hang in the balance here might be deeply impressed and that we as a church might uh, lovingly convey the good news of Jesus Christ uh, to others here with us today but also as we look out into our week with uh, so many people that we know in workplaces uh, neighborhoods and schools uh, that don't know you don't know of their grace and are searching Uh, for their deepest identity of who they are and how to be loved. And we pray that so many of them would find their primary identity uh, in Christ, knowing of your great love for us. And it's in Jesus' precious and very powerful name we pray. Amen.